a little Jewish boy comes home from school and he tells his mother that he got a, uh, a part in the school play. She says, oh yeah, Bubala, what part? He says, I'm playing the part of the Jewish father. She says, oh no, go back to your teacher and tell her you want a speaking part. This week's Parsha, Parsha's Hazinu, we read the song of Hazinu, the song that Moshe taught the Jewish people. And uh, it says, V'yave Moshe, V'yadabras kol Moshe came and he said this entire song, Ba'ozne ha'am, in the ears of the people, Hu v'heshe'a bin nun, he, Moshe Rabbeinu, and Heshea bin Nun. Heshea bin Nun is the old name of Yeshua, of Joshua, before Moshe changed it to Yeshua, to Joshua. Okay. So, a uh, couple of questions here, which Rashi deals with. Um, why did Moshe and Yeshua together teach this song of Hazinu? And uh, Rashi explains, well, there was a reason for that. It was Moshe's way of preparing the people to accept the transfer of leadership from him, from Moshe, to Yeshua. So if they would see Yeshua taking on a leadership role together with him, helping him to, to teach the song of Hazinu, then they would see that uh, Yeshua had actually been uh, raised to the level, level of leader in Moshe's lifetime. Uh, indeed, that is what Rashi says, that the people, if, if Moshe had not done this, the people might have said later on, after Moshe's passing and Yeshua uh, becoming leader, the people might have said, in the lifetime of your teacher, you did not dare raise your head. That's, that's the wording of Rashi. Um, and now, and now you want to be our leader? So Moshe uh, wanted to anticipate that and take care of that, and he made sure that Yeshua had that public and prominent place teaching with him the Song of Hyzeno before Moshe's passing. Okay, so that's that's one thing uh, about the verse that uh, that Rashi explains. The other thing that needs to be explained, which Rashi also explains, why Yeshua is referred to here here as Hesheya. Hesheya is his old name. Uh, Yeshua is the name that Moshe gave him by adding the letter Yud, which Yud is uh, symbolizes Hashem's name. Uh, Moshe added that letter to uh, Hesheya and made it Yeshua before he sent him out on the mission of the spies back in Parsha Shlach, which was 38 years prior to this uh, story. Um, so, or 39 years prior to this uh, to this story. So. Um, Rashi and Rashi explains that. Uh, what's the reason? That it's to show that even though Yeshua was rising to prominence at this moment, he retained his humility just like in the old days when he was still called Heshea. Okay, fine. It's fairly straightforward, not that hard to understand, but here's our question. And our, and our question is going to help us to understand something about the role of Yeshua as Moshe's successor. Question is, Rashi, as he often does, gets his the basis of his commentary from uh, Medrashim, from the from the earlier works of the the Tanoim. Um, in this case, the commentary here is based on the words of the Sifri. 
And Rashi changes the language a little bit. Rashi says that the people would have complained if, if indeed Yeshua had not co-taught the Song of Hyzina with Moshe, and then all of a sudden one day became the leader out of the blue with no previous um, experience as, as leader in the lifetime of Moshe, people would have said to him, hey, what are you doing? In the lifetime of your teacher, you never even dared raise your head. Lahorim Rosh is the expression. You never even raised your head, and now all of a sudden you want to be leader? But that's what Rashi says. That's not the wording in the, in the Medrash that Rashi is basing on. Uh, in the Medrash, the, the people would have said, In the lifetime of your teacher, you never spoke. And now you speak. So, the original source, the people would have just said to, to Yeshua, Hey, you never spoke before, publicly, I mean. And now all of a sudden, you're speaking in public. But what Rashi says is, is much more severe than that. The people would have said, you never even lifted your head. You never even moved a muscle, to use the idiom of today. You didn't, you didn't even move. And now all of a sudden you want to move? You want to you know, you make a move? You want to draw attention to yourself? So we want to understand why Rashi uses a different language. In fact, a much more intense uh, language than, than the Medrash that he is basing himself on. Okay. So, I want to tell you a story. In the 1930s, when the Lubavitcher Rebbe and his Rebetzin were living in Berlin and in Paris, the Rebbe was sent on many missions by his father-in-law, the, the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe Reyatz, Rebbe Yisuf Yitzchok. And one of these missions was a shlichus to go to Vilna. Vilna, which was the bastion of Torah scholarship in Lithuania, and uh, also traditionally had been, been the seat of opposition to Chassidus. But there was a particular matter of communal affairs, which required a uh, sort of a coalition of Hasidim and Misnagdim. So the previous Rebbe sent his son-in-law to Vilna, to get the signature of Reb Chaim Eizer, who was a Rosh Hashiva and a Rav, Av Bezdin, in, in Vilna. So uh, the Rebbe arrived in Vilna, and it happened at that time that Reb Chaim Eizer was meeting with another great Torah luminary of the time, Reb Baruch Ber. Reb Baruch Ber was the Talmud Muvhok of Reb Chaim Brisker. In fact, Reb Chaim Eizer and Reb Baruch Ber were both Talmidim of Reb Chaim Brisker. Um, and Reb Baruch Ber was visiting Reb Chaim Eizer on this particular occasion. The Rebbe was sitting on a bench waiting in the hallway to be admitted to uh, Reb Chaim Eizer's office. And as the Rebbe was sitting there, some Bachram, they, they saw a, a visitor, and they immediately discerned he was Hasidic, and they, they decided to start harassing him. You know, there's a long-standing uh, stereotype that the Hasidim don't learn. You know, they're not Torah scholars. So these young men from Vilna, they started asking the Rebbe questions 
about Torah scholarship, Talmudic questions. And the Rebbe did not answer. The Rebbe didn't say a word to them. And uh, they were harassing him mercilessly. And the Rebbe didn't say a word, nothing. Now, Rebbe Chaim Ezer opened the door and he was watching this. He was seeing what was happening. So he, he, he told the Rebbe, come in. So the Rebbe got up, came inside, and as soon as they closed the door, the Rebbe said, by the way, this and this and this question that they, they asked me, here are the answers. And the Rebbe gave astoundingly clear answers to, all, to these questions that these Bacham had been asking him, asking him out in the hallway. So Rebbe Chaim Eze says to the Rebbe, he says, clearly you were able to answer. Why didn't you answer outside when, the, when those guys were harassing you? So the Rebbe told Rebbe Chaim Eze, I was sent on a shlichus by my father-in-law. And that shlichus is to come here and get the Rav's signature. Um, answering those guys in the hallway was not part of my shlichus. That wasn't part of my mission. That's not the mission I was on. So I, I didn't answer them. Now, when I saw that you saw that they were asking me questions and I couldn't answer the questions, or you thought I couldn't answer the questions because I wasn't answering, I knew that could actually affect the mission. Because maybe if you thought that I'm an ignoramus, you wouldn't want to sign my father-in-law's letter. So therefore, I had to show you that I could answer because that's part of me doing my shlichus, about, uh, you know, doing my, my mission for my father-in-law. But to answer those guys, I had nothing to do with my mission, and that's why I didn't answer. At any rate, at that same time, um, as Reb Chaim Ezer took the letter and was reading the letter before signing, Reb Baruch Ber continued to speak to the Rebbe about learning and was so enthralled, so astounded. Reb Baruch Ber finally said to the Rebbe, Younger man, come with me and I will make you the biggest gadol in, in the Litvisher world. And the Rebbe apologized and said, I'm sorry, but I have my mission. I have my shlichus in life, and it is to work for my father-in-law. And at this moment, Rebbe Baruch Ber began to cry. By the way, how do we know this? How do we know such a story? We know the story because there was a mashkiach in RJJ, in the yeshiva, in the Lower East Side, Rebbe Shaya, who was the Meshadas, who was the personal attendant of Reb Baruch Ber. He was there, he saw this, and he eventually, when he was on the Lower East Side in Manhattan, he shared this story with a couple of Bachram. It's a whole story about why he shared it with them, because these Bachram had they snuck out to go to a Fabrengen in 770, and then he shared this, Reb Shaya shared this story. So, that's, that's the story I wanted to tell you. And, and the point of it is, the Rebbe's complete bittle, self-effacement to his father-in-law, to his Rebbe. That when he was on a mission of his father-in-law, that's it. That's it. That's all there was, nothing else. Now, if that's how the Rebbe was when he was on a mission of his father-in-law, imagine how the Rebbe was when he was in the presence of his father-in-law. Well, actually, we don't have to imagine because it's well documented. And everyone who saw the Rebbe in the presence of his father-in-law saw that the Rebbe was completely, he made himself like a non-entity. There was one time after a fabrengen of the previous Rebbe, the previous Rebbe got, out, uh, got up and walked out, 
and the Rebbe did not get up and follow. The Rebbe continued to sit at the table, which was unusual. The Rebbe would usually get up immediately after his father-in-law and follow him out of the room after the Febrengen. And this time the, the Friedrich Rebbe got out, walked out, and the Rebbe continued to sit at the table. Only after the Friedrich Rebbe had left the room did the Rebbe stand up, and as the Rebbe stood up, the table fell over. And they realized the reason the Rebbe didn't get up, the Rebbe didn't want to move, because the table broke because of all the pushing of the crowd during the Febrengen, the table actually broke. And the Rebbe had been holding up the table the entire time and didn't want to even let on that that's what was going on. And when the Friedrich Rebbe finally got up and left the room, then the Rebbe got up and the table fell. The Rebbe had been holding up the table the entire time. Similarly, there's a picture of a, a dinner here in America, in New York, 1942. There was a Lubavitcher Yeshiva fundraising dinner. And you see the previous Rebbe got up to speak, which was very difficult for him at that point, health-wise. And the Rebbe got up and stood next to the Friedrich Rebbe. And you can see the Rebbe holding the Friedrich Rebbe's hand to, to, to give him support. There's a, there's a shliach who has a, a, a supporter who's a doctor. And this doctor keeps this photo on his desk. Why does he keep this photo on his desk? He says, because as a, as a doctor, as a student of human anatomy, he says, you don't realize what's going on there, how uncomfortable that position is, that the Rebbe is holding his hand in such a way to provide maximum support to his father-in-law, but at the same time is a, is, a, is a position which is very, very difficult for someone to hold their hand in for any sustained amount of time. But we see that that was the level of the Rebbe's self-effacement in the presence of his father-in-law. Now, I'm going to tell you this. As much as the Rebbe made himself absolutely like a non-entity in his father-in-law's presence, or went on a shlichus, on a mission of his father-in-law, there came a time when the previous Rebbe wanted the Rebbe to begin to reveal himself to the Chassidim. And it happened before the, before the Rebbe became officially the leader, became the Rebbe. It was already in the lifetime of the previous Rebbe. And one of those major turning points uh, was actually in 1931. The, the previous Rebbe was living in Riga, in Latvia. He'd already had to flee uh, Soviet Russia. And he came to Advotsk, to Poland, for Tishrei, for the High Holidays. And the story is told by the Bachram who were there. Rabbi uh, Galitsky, from Montreal, actually recounts this uh, on a gem video. Um, that they didn't really know anything. I mean, they knew that the Ramash, as they called him, was the, the Friedrich Rebbe's son-in-law, so he must be something special. But, and they saw that he never left his father-in-law's side. He was always with him. But he didn't really speak. They didn't really, <laughs> he didn't do anything. So they didn't really weren't sure what was going on. Um, but that sukkis, everything changed. The Friedrich Rebbe told the Rebbe that he should go and fabreng Simchas Beis the Knights of Sukkot, he should fabreng with the Chassidim in the Sukkah. So, Rabbi Galitsky, who tells the story, he was a Bacha there in Poland at the time, he says, look, we assumed that the Rebbe must be a Talmud Chachem, but we never even 
We didn't dream of something until this, until we saw it with our eyes. The Rebbe Fabreng with us in the sukkah from 8 p.m. until 7 a.m. An 11-hour Fabrengin on one Mishnah. <laughs> 11 hours on one Mishnah. A Mishnah from Pirkeoves. Rabbi Yehuda ben Tema says, be bold like a leopard and swift like, a, like an eagle. 11 hours the Rebbe Fabreng, one Mishnah, and he brought from Zayar and from, from Gemara and from, from Medrash, Rishaynim, Achreinim. He says, we were, we were blown away. We never saw anything like that. And this was from the person who we never saw him move. We never saw him open his mouth. We didn't, we didn't know. We didn't know. Now all of a sudden we see. So let's get back to our question about, about Rashi's commentary from this week's Parsha. Why does Rashi say that Yeshua never lifted his head? He never lifted his head. Meaning he never even moved. He never, you know, so much as, uh, you know, stirred in his place. The words of the Medrash that Rashi is basing himself are, uh, on is that he, di- he, he didn't speak. He never spoke. So why does Rashi change that? So let's think about this. What do we know about Yeshua? What we know about Yeshua is what the Teda tells us about Yeshua. Teda tells us that Yeshua was Mishares Meshet. The attendant, the valet, the, the, the butler of Moshe. What do we know about Yeshua? We know that he was Nar. They call, they call him Nar. Nar means a boy. A boy, who didn't leave Moshe's tent. Okay, He was 56 years old when the Torah calls him Nar, a boy, but that was his level of self-effacement. To Moshe, he was the boy, he was the attendant, the lad, the, the, the servant who never left Moshe's side. And, and, and that's why Rashi changes the words from the Medrash from in Moshe's lifetime that people never saw Yeshua speak. That's what the, the Medrash says. They never saw him speak. Rashi changes it to they never saw him lift his head. He didn't, he didn't so much as lift his head. Why, why does Rashi make this change? Because Rashi's point isn't that Yeshua didn't have previous public speaking experience. That wasn't the point. The point wasn't that he never got up to the dais and spoke. The point was that what people saw of Yeshua in, in Moshe's lifetime, they didn't see him move. They didn't see him move. So they had no idea what he was capable of. So all of a sudden, when he became leader, we never saw this guy even so much as move. And now all of a sudden, he's leader. So Moshe wanted to show in his lifetime that Yeshua was indeed a, 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 a fitting successor. And that's why they taught the Song of Haizinu together. By the way, think about when it talks about the, the method of, of, of Torah transmission, the Messiah. It talks about it in the Gemara in, uh, in Erevin, that... What was the order of teaching? It says Moshe would learn from Hashem, and then Aaron would come in, and Moshe would teach the lesson to Aaron. Then Aaron would move away, and he would sit at Moshe's left side, and then Aaron's sons would come in, Allah's of Yisamar, and, and, and uh, Moshe would teach them. And then they would move to the side, Lazar would sit at Moshe's right, and Isamar would sit at, at, at Aaron's left, and then the Zakanim, the elders, would come in, and Moshe would teach would teach them. 
So then the elders would move aside, and then the entire nation would come in, and Mesha would teach them. So it comes out, the Gemara says, that the entire nation learned the lesson once from Mesha. The, the, the Zikanim, the elders, learned twice from Mesha. Aaron's sons learned three times from Mesha. And Aaron himself learned four times from Mesha every lesson. So I want to ask you a question. Where was Yeshua when all this was happening? How many times did Yeshua learn each lesson? Well, <laughs> we know that Yeshua literally never left Mesha's side. He never budged from the tent. So the answer is, even though he's not mentioned there, he was standing there the whole time, silently, in complete awe and complete devotion to his Rebbe, to Mesha. And this is what the people saw for 40 years. For 40 years, they saw someone who did not so much as lift his head. And that's why Moshe had Yeshua teach the Song of Hazina together with him in his lifetime. Because the people, not only did they never see Yeshua speak, they never saw him move. Yeshua was so selfless, he made himself so unobtrusive in Moshe's presence, that, that people could, could fail to realize that, that Yeshua was, was leadership material. And that's why Mesha had to do this, specifically make this demonstration. And that's also the significance of Rashi's explanation why Yeshua is referred to here by his old name of Heshea. Because Rashi says that it's to tell us that although he was granted greatness at this point, he humbled himself like before. Rashi's point here isn't just to tell us why Yeshua is still called Heshea even after he became Yeshua. Rashi's telling us why he's called Heshea in this place. In this place of all places where he's being installed into leadership, it seems very odd in the context where he's being installed into greatness, into leadership, that he's being referred to by his old name, the name he got the, 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 before he got the name from Meshur Rabbeinu. And that's what Rashi is explaining, that that's the whole point. Why did Meshur feel the need to have Yeshua teach the Song of Isaiah publicly together with him in Meshur's own lifetime? Precisely because Yeshua had always behaved so humbly. He, even when he became a Yeshua, he, he stayed humbled like, like a Heshea. His whole career, the whole time, he was acting humbly with such selflessness. And that's why if Meshur hadn't put Yeshua up there with him to teach the song together, the people would never even believe that this humble, humble, humble servant was capable of such a thing. That's why he's called Heshea right here, to teach us that he was still that humble servant. And that's why Moshe had to push him up to the front. <laughs> like the Fidik Rebbe had the Rebbe Fabreng for 11 hours, if I can draw a comparison. That, by the way, I should just, for sake of transparency, this lesson is based on a sicha from Lakute Sichas, um, from Chelek uh, Koftes, volume 29 of Lakute Sichas. These stories are my editions. I'm humbly offering them as a possible parallel, and uh, it should be taken, uh, you know, with that level of, of authority, meaning it's just my I'm drawing a parallel. However, I will share with you what it does say in the Sicha, in the original Sicha. And that is the Hira, the lesson, the moral of the story. 
what point should we take away from from this this whole story about Yeshua? Here's the Hera that the Rebbe gives. The days following Rosh Hashanah that we're in right now, the Jewish people have just crowned Hashem as king. We just made Hashem king over the entire universe again for another year. That's very powerful. We're very powerful that we're able to get Hashem to be king over the world for, for another year. So we might become haughty because we realize how much power we have. So just like Yeshua humbled himself, we also have to have humility. We have to realize even though we have this power as Jews to make Hashem be king, that shouldn't make us haughty. That should give us an even greater measure of, of humility. Or like the Alter Rebbe says, the closer you are to Hashem, the more distant you realize you are. The closer you are, the more humble you become. The, the, the humility becomes a vessel for receiving all the blessings. All the blessings from Hashem. Which then assures us a good, sweet, healthy, happy new year. Gemar Chesim to one and all.